Uh, morning, my name is Megan Dobraz. I'm the pastor of Adult Ministries. Uh, why don't you join me in prayer as we get rolling. Lord God, I do thank you so much for the opportunity we have to be together this morning, to be in a safe, dry, warm place where we pray that as we uh, look at your word that your Holy Spirit would reveal to us what it is that you would have for us individually and collectively and how that will impact our city. Lord, we do pray particularly for the youth who are away, who have set aside this time to pursue you. Lord, I pray that you would be sowing seeds in their heart that leads them toward a a long-term relationship with you and that as some of them will have the opportunity to make a decision for you this weekend or a recommitment to you, Lord. We just pray that you would give leaders wisdom to meet them in that space uh, and to, to nurture them well. Your name, amen. Morning, so glad to see you this morning. Nate went rogue on that, by the way. I take no credit. Uh, I am curious, uh, how many of you set New Year's resolutions? Just kind of throw your hand up for a second. No shame in that. How, it's three weeks in, you can keep them up. Uh, it's three weeks in, how many of you kept them so far? Yeah, wow. That actually has nothing to do with the sermon, I was just super curious, so thank you for letting me into your life a little bit. What does have to do with the sermon is that I had these two intersecting experiences that I can't stop thinking about, and so I'm gonna share them with you. The first is that uh, I went to the Longest Night service, which you might know we do this service around here, December 21st, the day of the year that has the longest darkness, and it's a space where you can uh, grieve whatever is going on in your life, their lack of things or things that haven't turned out the way that you wanted them to. It's just kind of a, a space to do some work with the Lord and be, you know, receive some grace from him and uh, you know, be taken care of. It's just a kind of a chance to be in that space with others who are kind of in a like-minded space. So at that service, I got a, a chance to talk to somebody who was trying to act like it's no big deal and that they were fine, though they were profusely crying, and telling me that how profoundly lonely they were and that, uh, you know, this stuff had happened in their life, which meant that two of their really close friends had physically moved away, and so they were just, like, profoundly lonely, and it's Christmas. And, like, it sucks all the time to be profoundly lonely, but at Christmas, it especially is difficult. Uh, It feels rougher. It's like seeing this epic party from your car, right? Like it's just that space between like where you are and what's going on. It just can be really painful. So it's just not right. And I haven't been able to shake this conversation, not only because this particular person uh, shared with me this incredible pain they were going through, but also because I know that that's not the only person who's experiencing that sort of loneliness, that we live in a city that have all sorts of, of people who experience this like palpable feeling of loneliness, people in our community, perhaps people in this very room who could say like, I could tell you exactly what loneliness feels like because I'm experiencing it right now, that uh, we don't have time to really go into what loneliness is and how it's less about the number of people you're around or the number of friends you have and more about how connected you feel uh, on the inside. But the point is is that it feels tragic to know that there are people among us who feel this so deeply and who are being crushed by the, the weight of this, that they're wilting on the inside, feeling like they're at a concert and everybody knows the songs but them. Just so sad, and I haven't been able to shake it. The second encounter that I had was from a few weeks ago. At the very beginning of the year, the first Sunday of the year, Richard gave this sermon that was on kind of the state of the church address. 
And, and he was talking mostly about the church at large, so that capital C church. Uh, and since we're a part of that, it applies to us as well. And one of the things he said very gently, but nonetheless, he, uh, he said, you know, we're described in John as God's light. Like we're supposed to be the light of the world, that Christ's light shines through the church. And uh, just as like we're supposed to do that all throughout the world, like we have the ability at Bethany to do that as well, because there's a lot of darkness in our, in our world. And, uh, you know, light, 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 all this opportunity. But then he said that we're in this season where... Christians and non-Christians alike don't really want to be associated with the church because the church currently has this reputation for treating other groups of people with disdain. And I like got stabbed in the heart. And when, when he was talking about this, I was like, oh my gosh, this feels so convicting that I think that that might be true, that people might look at us from the outside and not see this beautiful light, but really see this like group of people who's against a bunch of stuff and who, you know, has, has, this group, groups of people on their list uh, that we, we don't like. And uh, when we do this, obviously the biggest problem is that we give an inaccurate picture of who Christ is, right? Like that's not right. That's not who Christ is. Uh, and so as he's talking about this, I'm like feeling convicted and feeling like, oh my gosh, I know we can do better than this. Like I know we can be better uh, we, we have a powerful Holy Spirit that we just have to follow. Like, we don't even really have to do that much work to think up what we're supposed to do. We just need to follow. Uh, and so, like, let's do that this year. Like, it's what I'm thinking. Like, great, we can do this. Like, this just, like, we have to do something that, you know, I'm an epic compartmentalizer. I'm really good at it, world class, some might say. But I haven't been able to shake these two stories because I go, this can't be our story. Like, it can't be that in this time of life, when I'm a part of the church, when I have influence, when we all gather every Sunday, get together, and this is our story, that we have people among us who are hurting so painfully on the inside, they feel alone, and the people who look at us go, yeah, I just kind of steer clear of them, like, they're going to judge me. That just feels so terrible, like, I can't let that happen. So what do we do? Do we have all the lonely people stand up and assign them a friend? Like, that doesn't seem like a very good idea. Do we put an ad on Alexa that says, hey, come to church, we promise we like you. Like, that doesn't seem like a very effective thing. Those are terrible ideas, we're not gonna do those things. If you're lonely, your heart rate can load, go down a little bit. Uh, but luckily, we find some better ideas in Romans 12. Uh, which we're looking at this morning. Jeff Cuse, who is an amazing human being in general, taught last week about the first uh, couple, the couple verses of, of chapter 12. So check that out if you missed it last week. But in Romans, Paul, on the whole, is making a case for Christianity. And as you may have noticed as we've been going through this series, he does so by asking questions and then answering them. In chapters 12 to 16, he seems to be posing and then answering the question, if all I, Paul, have been saying so far is true, so if God's grace is durable, if the gospel is permanent, and the promises of God are non-negotiable and non-shakable, if all this is true, then how are we supposed to live in the world that we're in right now? What are we supposed to do? Is there a strategy to face the world that we're particularly living in? Great questions, Paul. He obviously was writing to a group of people centuries ago who were living in a challenging time, but it might seem that our time is particularly challenging as well, that it's filled with darkness and could use some wisdom on that topic. 
So we'll look at the remaining chapters in the coming weeks. But today in chapter 12, Paul is particularly addressing how do we live in the world with each other? A strategy of how to interact with others, how to be in mutual relationship, which because of these two experiences, I was stoked to be able to spend some time looking at these. Because in Romans chapter 12, Paul's main point is to understand that we get our meaning from expressing our gifts through the whole, not as individuals. And then he has these sub-points that how we can do that, how we're able to keep doing that, is to act in sincere love and let God make things right. So first he says, understand, like the main point is understand that we get our meaning from the whole. This is verses three to eight. And pull out a Bible electronic version if you have it. We'll be in chapter 12 a lot. So if you want to reference it, that now's a good time. Uh, don't check your email while you're doing it, but pull out your, pull out your device. So for those of us who are believers, when we made the decision to follow Christ, we became part of the family of God. Just as God covenanted with David saying, I promise that if you're with me, you'll be my sons and you're my daughters. So with us, that to follow Christ means that we are his sons and daughters. That makes us all brothers and sisters, some verbiage that we use rather frequently around here, that together we're one giant family albeit a dysfunctional one, but we're working on that. Paul describes this one giant family using the analogy of the body. And just as as we're one body, all all these many, but one body. So whether it's here in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 2 and 4, Colossians 3, Paul loves this example of a body because it's just so easy to grasp. Uh, That this understanding that all of us are essential and we're, we're essential to be unified and we're fundamental, these, uh, this understanding of a body and how we interact with each other. So the point at which we said yes to Christ through his spirit, all of us who identify as Christians, we've said goodbye to our partial piecemeal lives, the things that we were doing to kind of make our life work, make our, our self feel okay. We said goodbye to those things and we used to do our own thing, but now we've entered into this large integrated life in which we're, we've given Christ the final say in our lives, in everything, because we believe that he's a good God. So when it comes to the family of God and other believers, there's no more me versus them. It's all an us. Like, we're all one. Somebody just asked me if I could share my password with them. That's really funny. No. Um... <laughs> So there's no more me versus them, it's us. So it's not to say that we've been like assimilated into the Borg, we're now part of this hive mind or some sort of collective that steals our individuality, but rather we now belong. We have others who are are walking alongside of us in the quest that is figuring out the life that we've been given. Uh, We have a clear way to contribute to society that we think is the goal of humankind. Like we now belong in something. Belonging to something is so entirely, without question, beautiful, right? Like any time that you are like, oh, I'm a member of that, you just go, Ooh, I love that. Belonging is beautiful. It's hard to describe what it feels like when you know that you're a part of something. Over Christmas break, my nephew and I watched the movie Harry and the Hendersons, uh, partially because, you know, two weeks straight of every waking moment together, you kind of begin to scrape the bottom of the barrel about what you're going to do for the day. So I'm like, kid, watch this movie. It's great. Like, you'll love it. Just 
be quiet for a minute and watch this movie. Uh, so in this movie, Harry, who's a Sasquatch, which if you're born after 1990 and you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, Harry is a Sasquatch, surprise. Uh, he gets hit by John Lithgow's character in this ginormous um, station wagon, and of course, taken into the city, because that's what you would do if you hit a Sasquatch. Um, so in this situation, of course, like, the Sasquatch has been living in the woods by himself forever. He doesn't belong to anything. He's like this mystical thing, like he's not part of a family. And John Lithgow is like, you can't stay here, you're destroying my house, yada, yada. And then, of course, he has this change of heart. And he says to Harry, you're a Henderson. Like, you can stay here, you can be part of our family, like, you're one of us, live here with us. Harry's so excited, he destroys more of the house, which just makes it comic relief. Uh, but Harry's so overjoyed because he's been alone, he's been hunted, he's been living in the, in the woods, and now he's found a place of belonging where he's loved, he's adopted. It's so beautiful for a 1990s movie. Sasquatch. But as beautiful as this is, uh, as much as it theoretically speaks to our deepest longings, and we can say, like, yeah, I love being a part of something. I love knowing that I'm vital to something. This imagery and understanding we get, but we don't necessarily do, right? That for the majority of us, we actually function in a much different way. We're familiar with using report cards or income brackets, resumes, achievements, social media likes, places we serve, and our physical presentation and how that's received. That's what typically determines our meaning. meaning. We note our value based on what we produce, what others think of us, how good we are at things, and we think of those things as in our control. Like, my meaning is derived from my own work. We spend time blatantly or subtly, consciously or unconsciously, figuring out how we're going to communicate to others how meaningful we are and how significant we are. But Paul turns all of that upside down and describes how God's grace has given us this particular set of skills or gifts. They're interchangeable. Uh, and, and he's given us these, these gifts to, to be who we're made to be, that when we express them, we get to be who we're made to be. Because the gifts we've been given are such that when we use them, we bring a concrete expression of God's graciousness and this, his pursuit of mankind, humankind into the world. It's how the congregation functions. It's how we are the body of Christ. When its members let the grace of God be seen through them in a variety of diverse expressions. The list Paul provides here that, that uh, Nate read, prophesying, teaching, encouragement, uh, mercy, leading, giving, it's not an exhaustive list. There are these big categories. There's some examples of the way that God's grace can be shown in the world. We all have gifts. That's his point. Use those gifts is his point. Subpoint is only use your gifts. Don't use other people's gifts. Stay in your lane. Uh, but those gifts we, we have are intended to help us remain mutually interdependent on each other and thus receiving our meaning from the whole when we're in that, independent, or in that dependence. The way you show God's grace to the world, if it's inviting people to sit with you at lunch, that's beautiful. It's an expression of who, who Christ is. If it's making a lunch that will then be eaten uh, next to somebody, great, that's a beautiful expression of who Christ is in the world. 
We need all of these gifts, not only because we're far more effective when we are apart. Ecclesiastes talks about this cord of three strands that's not easily broken, but because diversity is crucial to a healthy body. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul gives all these silly examples about how we'd never think that a foot was useless because it wasn't a hand, or we'd never say that an ear shouldn't be part of our body because it wasn't an eye. Like His whole point is that we need the whole. That a healthy body is one entity, and yet requires diverse uh, members who are mutually interdependent on each other in order to function and do the amazing things that a body can do. This makes total sense to us in our physical body. When we're running for the bus and thinking about the meeting that we're on our way to, we don't usually stop and go, wow, my body has figured out how to use the food that I ate earlier to change that into energy so I'm able to run and think at the same time. Like We would say, like, yeah, I want all those pieces that make that happen, but we don't think about how it happens. We're not going to get rid of anything because we love that that's happening. It makes sense to us. It makes total sense to us when we read or we hear about Lewis and Clark, which perhaps you do on a regular basis because you should, because they're epically cool. But when you think about their expedition, when they pulled their team together to go from St. Louis to Astoria, Oregon, that they'd want some diverse skills on that team. That they'd want somebody who knew how to hunt and scout and do some field medicine, someone who could communicate with natives along the way, someone who'd be able to judge land quality. Like, you wouldn't just want all map readers, right? Like, problem with that. So we understand the concept and the need for diversity in many ways that we know we're better for it, we're stronger for it, and yet it's still a significant growing edge for us as a culture. We keep getting tripped up around diversity, Perhaps thinking that we we have enough of it, like we can only handle so much of it and we have enough of it, let's just call it good. Or maybe when we're around folks who are notably different than us, it brings up our own insecurities or makes us not feel good. So, but besides saying, Paul saying to us, hey, you're all amazing, use your gifts. Paul warns us against thinking too much of ourselves in verse three. He calls out pride very specifically because the danger that it poses to the unity of people whether it's the pride that takes shape of arrogance or self-importance, concluding that there is a, a hierarchy of humankind and you're more towards the top of the pile because, I mean, Paul just told us we were amazing. We're really good at solving problems. We work really hard. Or because we've just figured out a bunch of things, like more than the average person. Like in the hierarchy, I'm more towards the top is what someone might think or the pride that takes, that takes shape of low self-worth, seeing that you don't have much to add, uh, that you, you have little value or in your contributions, thinking that everyone else has more to offer than you do, that you're a mess, there's really nothing amazing about us, we're just kind of average. Either one of these, whether it's a generalized version or a specific version, uh, you know, focusing on work or a specific ability, either one of those, arrogance or thinking too less of yourself, is still thinking too much about yourself, which is what Paul's point is. It's like both of those, whatever version it is, is still pride. You're still thinking too much of yourself, more than you ought. Pride gets a special call out because it's one of the, if not the greatest danger to the unity and oneness of us as a corporate identity. As soon as we start making hierarchies, our wholeness and our ability to most effectively appreciate each other and work together begins to fall apart. 
We can't see the value of what others are bringing to the table and their unique gifts and ways when we have hierarchies. Years and years ago, uh, we had one of those like staff retreat days where you're supposed to have fun and like learn about each other and do these like fun games and just so fun. And, and we get, we're in this place, we're in two different teams and we have this like directive, go from one end of the yard to the other end of the yard, but there's all these like rules attached. Like you can't have more than two people touching at one, like touching the ground at once, and uh, you're competing against the other team for time, and you have a set amount of time, and there's all these other things. So uh, I, you know, it's it's supposed to be fun, is the general idea, learning about each other. So I'm on a team. Pastor Phil is on my team. Some other people are on my team. And somebody throws out an idea of like, oh, we could do this. And I'm like, great, let's do it. Like, it wasn't my idea, but I'm like, all on board, let's do it. And Phil says like, well, that's an idea, but let's like, what are some other ideas? And I instantly am like, saboteur. Like, I know that you are on this team right now trying to make us lose. Like, don't worry, everybody. I've figured it out. I'm literally saying these things. I'm like making a case that Phil is actively trying to make us lose. And it's part of the game. Like, how do you work with somebody who's working against you? And so I'm like making this whole thing. And Phil's like, I'm not doing that. Like, I just think we should think of other ways. And I'm like, don't worry. Of course you would say that. Like, why is he going to admit that we caught on to him? Like, we got this. So Phil and I start fighting about this. Uh, I mean, actively. Uh, like, Again, and I'm saying, like, the only reason that we would not begin to do this, we have a time limit, like, the only reason that we would not do this idea and see if it works is because you want us to lose. And so, side note, it's not really helpful to, like, do team building and fight about whether that person should be on the team. Like, not helpful in the moment. Actually, not helpful afterwards either. But, uh, so we end up, so I'm like, fine, fine, fine we'll just pretend like you're on our team uh, and like we'll do this idea. And so this plan actually involves me jumping on Phil's back because, you know, only two people can be touching. And I'm like, Phil. I mean, it's so clear that he's annoyed with me. Also clear that I'm annoyed with him. So I'm like, I'm going to jump on his back and he is going to drop me because I would think about doing that because I'm so annoyed with him. Uh, but I'm, now I'm like paranoid. I'm like, Phil, don't drop me. Phil, don't drop me. Whatever. So... Uh, Side note, it turns out he wasn't a saboteur at all, <laughs> at all, uh, and he wasn't trying to make us lose, and I have apologized for this more times than I could count. I've already apologized to him earlier today, because I was like, <laughs> Phil, just one more time, very sorry. Because in the overconfidence of my youthfulness, I just couldn't, it just didn't dawn on me how his perspective could have any merit, like how we would waste our time talking about this. Uh, because it was so divergent from my own, right? Like I just couldn't see any other side of it. Pride makes no room for differences and only succeeds in harming relationships rather quickly. In our highly educated, relatively upwardly mobile society that is Seattle, to watch out for our pride and be aware that it has a powerful ability to undermine unity and derail the good that we're working towards is just notable. One way that we can combat pride and keep growing in our appreciation of how important differences are is to attend that event that Emily talked about at the beginning of the services. A week from tomorrow, Wide Awake, uh, that idea of... Um, you know, it's this other installment of our efforts towards racial justice and, and reconciliation. And I think the event will be profound in a lot of ways. It's a great book, but it's also an opportunity to humbly listen and reflect on where our culture is 
and, and hoping together that it'll be a tangible practice of us being the body of Christ, that we can draw our meaning from who we are as a whole, as, as the body of Christ. We can know how to move forward, do something a little bit different in this time and space. Because all of us are in danger of harboring such pridefulness. False and divisive notions of self-esteem and conclusions about who we are. And the, the one who is most urgently uh, in, in, encouraged to listen is the one who hears the exhortation to worry about pride, to think about it, to be aware of it, and thinks that it's not for them, it's for others. Those are the people who... It's really all of us. So hopefully we can resonate with this a little bit. So for Paul, being in community with each other, living out our faith around others means setting down our tendency to derive our meaning from our individual accomplishments and instead draw from the body of Christ, knowing that we're a vital part of it. So this is his main point, knowing that we're a part of the the body of Christ. But then he addresses two other issues that can derail us from living into this new identity as being part of the whole. The the first comes from verses 9 to 16, that act in sincere love. The the thesis is kind of said right there in the very beginning of verse 9, love must be sincere. The sequence of teaching that Paul does, you know, I told you he repetitively does this body teaching, uh, is almost exactly in, the, in Romans as it is in 1 Corinthians. So in 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about how amazing and diverse the body is. And then in chapter 13, he talks about the importance of love when using our gifts. When we're a part of the body of Christ, and if we use these gifts without love, they're just noise. They're not actually the gifts. They don't produce what it is that God is trying to do. We void our gifts as these gracious expressions of the love of God when they aren't motivated by love. For Paul, it's clear that to be the body, we need gifts and we need to, need, or we need to use them that he's given us because without using our bodies in that way, we're just paralyzed. But it's love that determines the character of the body's function. Love is the vital vehicle to communicate God's grace. And when we use these gifts without God's love, then we're being counterproductive to their purposes and removing the gift of grace that they've been intended to be. I think Paul keeps telling us to use our, great, our, use our gifts and love together because he sees the danger of our, that our gifts can become mechanized. Like, oh, this is just how I use my gifts. They can become formalized. Oh, this is how I lead. I don't do other ways. This is how I lead. This is how I teach. This is how I show mercy. We can formalize these expressions, which both moves us away from particular human situations, particular uh, things that we're facing, but also can allow us, again, to hide in judgment. We can hide behind pride and an insensitive lack of concern when we kind of mechanize the way we use our gifts whether that's at work or in parenting or in balancing our own personal boundaries, engaging our gifts with love requires that we assess the spirit of a situation. So not just the presented situation, but what's the spirit of the situation that we're being called to teach, lead, invite, encourage, show mercy, whatever it is. And we've we've crafted these best practices so that we can live into our gift a little bit more efficiently. That's great. Use them as a guideline for how we do things, but then also assess the situation. Whether it's a coworker who's battling a tough spot in life, what can we do there? A child who wants to make an exception to the family rule, or a friend who's asking us to go above and beyond, we can just be like, 
I use the guidelines, that's not how I love, or we can truly consider how is God calling me to serve in this space. As I was thinking about this, like, call to love with sincerity, great, that's really important. I was thinking about my own inventory, and I began to think through it, and I was like, I actually think I'm pretty good at this. Note, pride in the previous example. Uh, But I really was like, I cannot think of very many people in my life who I don't love, who I wouldn't give whatever gift I had, if they needed it, like I would go out of my way, I will drive you to the airport at 6.30 in the morning, like whatever it is I'm in, uh, I want to use my gifts to benefit them. Then I realized that the reason that is, is because if I'm annoyed with somebody or I don't like them, I just move away from them. I stop returning their phone calls, I just make some physical space, so I don't let them be around me. And so I'm like, of course you have a great list. Like, you move away from people who are annoying, like, physically or metaphorically. Bummer, like, that's not what we're supposed to be doing either. So of course I'm good at it, I just cut out people I don't like. I'm not as good at sincere love as I thought because the call for genuine love requires that we fully accept others as whether they be friends or enemies as God in Christ has accepted them, that we stay in relationship with them to whatever extent, boundaries are great, but to whatever extent that God has called us to. I think it's easy to think of ourselves as sincere lovers when we make and stick to rules about how we do things or how we'll engage with others, or if we, again, just move away from them, don't have them around us if they're bothering us. Years ago in seminary, I had this pastoral uh, counseling, pastoral care class with someone who asked our professor, like, well, how do you minister to someone who you don't like? Like, how do you care for somebody when you don't like? His answer was not specific to just people in pastoral ministry. It's applicable to all of us. Uh, and, And he says, he's very wise, and he describes this thing that he called core approval. And he explained it by saying that, uh, you know, there, there, there are differences in his opinion between disliking a particular action someone's doing or disliking a particular personality trait that we find annoying and disliking a person. Like, there's a separation, and disliking a person is a little bit more intense. Uh, and he went on to say that if we as Christians know and believe that everyone's made in the image of God and they're somehow representing God's character in some way, in a unique way, and we still can't find a space in our heart to like them as this entire person, then one, we should refer them to talk to somebody else. Like, don't, don't try to like get over that hump. But then he also said, uh, this state of being has nothing to do with this person being totally unlikable. This has to do with you. Like if you look at somebody and you're like, oh, look at this beautiful image of God, I don't like them. Like that's more about the work that you have to do uh, in your own heart, the brokenness that we're wrestling with, the healing that we need. Because if Paul, Paul is wanting us to understand, we get our meaning from expressing our gifts through the whole, not as individuals. So when we express that gift, we have to do so in genuine love. So his final subpoint to support how we're able to kind of keep engaging with the body of Christ uh, and his grace is that in uh, verses 17 to 21, let God make things right. So we're supposed to do it with sincere love and then let God th- make things right. So he says, don't take vengeance into our own hands. Don't repay evil for evil. But as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It seems really fitting that given that tomorrow is MLK Day, and as, uh, you know, I think 
Martin Luther King Jr. did a great job embodying this idea of not taking vengeance and, and letting, uh, not repaying evil for evil. So I wanted you to turn your attention as we close to a portion of his speech from Birth of a New Nation. So here it is. The aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community. The aftermath of nonviolence is redemption. The aftermath of nonviolence is reconciliation. The aftermath of violence, however, is bitterness. This is the thing I'm concerned about. Let us fight passionately and unrelentingly for the goal of justice and freedom. Let's be sure that our hands are clean in the struggle. Let us never fight with falsehood and violence and hate and malice, but always fight with love so that when the day comes that the walls of segregation have completely crumbled in Montgomery, that we will be able to live with people as their brothers and Oh, my friends, I must be not to defeat Mr. Engelhardt, not to defeat Mr. Shallows and Mr. Gale and Mr. Parks. I must be to defeat the evil that's in them. But I must be to win the friendship of Mr. Gale and Mr. Shallows and Mr. Engelhardt. We must come to the point of seeing that our ultimate aim is to live with all men as brothers and sisters under God and not be their enemies or anything that goes with that type of relationship. I'm coming to the conclusion now. Some of the, the parts of that sermon that were so poignant to me, this is the thing I'm concerned about. Let us fight passionately and unrelentingly for the goals of justice and peace. But let's be sure that our hands are clean in this struggle. Let us never fight with falsehood and violence, hate and malice, but always fight with love. So that when the day comes that the walls of segregation have completely crumbled, that we will be able to live with people as their brothers and sisters. Oh, my friends, our aim must not be to defeat Mr. Englehart, not to defeat Mr. Sellers, Mr. Gale, and Mr. Parks. Our aim must be to defeat the evil that is in them. But our aim must be to win the friendship. So beautiful. For sure, he's talking very specifically about segregation, which is obviously an, an issue still that we work with, but then there's all these other spaces that we have the opportunity to engage with, to let God work out making things right, but we have the opportunity to engage with love, to set aside vengeance or what we think should happen. We're an incredibly gifted group of people. And those gifts have been given to us to bring meaning to our lives, to reflect Christ to those around us, to bring light into the world. We want this. Paul knows we want this. And in our journey of living this out, we're aware that we want it, but yet pride, rule-based love, love, and the desire for retaliation against wrongdoings is what we must be aware of and wrestle with. There's not space in our community in the community of God, for those things to stay in their current iteration. They're here, but let's work on them. Instead, God is wanting us to ever replace them more and more in our community with grace, with heartfelt love, and with peace. Join me in prayer as we ask him to do that. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God of transformation we thank you that you give us abundant gifts even though sometimes we don't steward them well. Lord, I do pray that our community in every iteration here in the city, Lord, would, would reflect you in a beautiful way 
that we would show our gifts, that you would be seen, that we would be a changed people, and that day by day we would be a little bit less prideful, a little bit less uh, of, of bad lovers, a, a little bit less, Lord, of the things that move people away from you, and that we would be your light more and more and find our meaning in that. Your name, amen.